you've got a copy of the Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy. If you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, it's towards the back end of the Bible. You can use the table of contents. It'll say 1 Timothy, hopefully on the top of the page, and we'll be in chapter 4. So look for the big number 4 there if you're unfamiliar with things. And we'll be going through all the verses of this chapter this morning. I told the story last week, but there's, a, there's an old allegory of a small village at the base of a mountain. And at the top of that mountain is a spring that provides excellent, life-giving water to the town below. And the spring is so important to that village, so important to those people, that the town elected a group of men to go up and stay by the stream to protect it, to make sure that harm doesn't go in so it doesn't pollute the people of the town below. They, but over time, people from the town got a little unhappy, and they started asking those men at the top to actually do more things up at the top, and even when time would allow, they would come down and do things in the, vi- in the village down below. Their jobs were supposed to be centered on protecting the spring, but over time, you can see this, the spring would become impure because the men at the top were busy with other things besides what the town had originally called them to do. Now, the illustration hopefully is obvious. The men at the spring are what God calls elders in the church. The spring itself is God's word going out, empowering the people to live. And the town is the church. It's an allegory about arranging roles within the church so that the word of God can continue to build and nourish the church as it grows in faith. But for us today, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul just talked previously about qualifications of leaders in the church and talked about the roles of men and women operating within the church, but now he turns his attention from church officers to his attention to those who are being seen as what's called falling away from the faith, those who are leaving behind the faith that they once confessed. Paul warns that in the last days, which is to mean today, In the last days, some Christians will, in fact, leave the faith they once professed. And our text says that they'll do so by following false teachers who substitute truth of the gospel with irreverent false teaching. So, the the call for this text is, what will Paul tell Timothy to do? What will Paul call our church to do when we find in front of us people falling away from the faith around us? What is an elder's role in this? What's the church's role, membership? What's their role? What's this elder in the church of Ephesus to do with the reality that there are people in the church who will fall away? Now, guys, this passage, all of this chapter, is, I think, timely and really good for us. It it reminds us of what's at stake in gospel ministry within a local church. What's at stake in gospel ministry from believer to believer? What to do in times of trial? What would you do if someone you loved was turning from you? This is what God's Word does for us. It helps us to understand all these things. Paul will tell us what the church should do, meaning all of the individual collection of believers in the church, and what the church leaders will do, meaning the role of elders in this. So two points if you're using an outline provided on the bulletin for you. But don't worry, the last point will have three points. So five. But what is the church called to do in the midst of people falling away from their faith? And by that, the church should hold fast to God's word. That's what the first five verses tell us in this passage. The Spirit of God is mentioned right off from the start. Paul is saying the Spirit of God is saying this. Paul, writing under the inspiration of God, the Spirit, says the Spirit is saying something prophetic in particular 
of the church. It is happening and it will happen. The Spirit warns that God's people, some within the church, will fall away from the faith. They'll no longer be a follower of Christ. They'll deny him completely. And this is where we get the word apostasy. If someone becomes apostate, or if a church becomes an apostate church, it means they've, they've left the faith. They've abandoned the faith. They'll no longer follow Christ. Some, uh, someone commits apostasy when they fall away or they deny through speech what, God, what they once said God has done, proving that they never believed in him altogether. But in the last days, which is to say between the cross of Christ and the return of him at the end, Timothy is ministering within this harsh reality. Maybe you are ministering to loved ones in this harsh reality that people who you once communed with and enjoyed are ones who are now falling away or professing something altogether different. Timothy is within this harsh reality, but thankfully he's warned about this. This text in a corresponding account in Acts chapter 20, uh, he would know about this is about to happen, so he sees it happening, and then he'll be told of what to do. I want you to look at verses 2 and 3 of the passage. Apostasy happens when people devote themselves to demonic teaching, to lying spirits and human teachers. That's how people got caught up in this. What does it mean for someone to fall away for the faith? Well, it means they have been caught up in, in following what the Bible calls as demonic teaching, false spirits and false human preachers. People will fall away because their minds become captive to false teachings on the gospel, and it, and it shows that it shipwrecks their faith. Ultimately, here's what happens. They abandon the word and its truth. There'll be times when people hear and people appear and their teaching is against the Bible's truth. In many ways, it may be captivating. It may be tantalizing to the mind and even encouraging or positive. And teachers will give impressions of being faithful and devoted. They'll come across as pious, but the word says their minds are seared of what is true. They may not even know what they're doing. It kind of gives some indication of saying. So maybe some people volitionally actually go and teach false doctrine, and then some are just caught up in it, and they don't know what their minds are doing. They're seared from the reality of the truth of Scripture. But they, like crafty serpents, may even speak cultural language that seems like they're one of us. They may come across as pious people to where they seem that's a, that's a man worthy to follow. They might even be incredibly gifted. They're doing something that no one else can do. There are words coming from them that feels like I've never heard anything like that before. They may put a congregation at ease and draw people in, looking and sounding like one of God's people, but the text says they're not. They're dangerous. They are steering people away from safety. Now, in our passage, the exact issue here is a little unclear, but the principle is obvious. Paul gives two examples to Timothy of how people are going astray by listening to false teachers. You see that in verse 3. These kind of teachers are outlawing things like biblical marriage and certain kinds of diets. We don't really know more than that, but they're wooing people in, dividing people up in this case, with false teaching on marriage and on foods being either good or evil. So what does the church do when it's faced with false teachers, demonic teaching, that is taking Bible words and confusing everyone in the meantime. What is the church to do? What should you do if commands are being promoted to you by a teacher like this? How do you know if that's right or wrong? How do you know if it's good or bad? Should you follow them? How would you ever have an understanding of that? 
Well, the answer is in Paul's letter, thankfully, in the corresponding verses. Paul brushes aside these exclusions by appealing to what the Word of God actually says. You don't need a third resource. You don't need someone with a seventh degree. You don't even need to go to chat GPT. You can go to the very Word of God. If someone comes along and forbids marriage, what do you do? Maybe they know something we don't. I've seen a lot of bad marriages. Maybe I don't want to be caught up in that. That seems like a really helpful thing. I don't know. I don't know what to do. Well, it says in the Bible that the only time it was actually not good was for man to be alone. The Bible talks about marriage. Paul protects this church by appealing to not another winsome man, not even to another preacher, but the very word of God, the words of the Lord. And with food, this case, this could be a weird, warped view of old covenant dietary laws, but it's in other biblical accounts that say that God has made these restrictions on food actually fulfilled in the sacrificial offering of Christ Jesus himself. So Paul would appeal to the word in order to, in order to confront people who are teaching what the word does not say. The dangerous, here, the dangerous thing here of this is that it should seem so obvious, but false teachers are so clever. We see all kinds of sects of Christian uh, religions where people are taking stuff like the seventh day of the week and construing it differently. Or they take something like marriage. In this case, they're telling people not to get married. In our day and age, people are telling people to marry people who they shouldn't be married to. You know, you're marrying someone who's the same gender as you, or maybe they were the same gender as you, but now they're actually another gender altogether. Well, how do you answer that? Do you need to watch a lot of Oprah tape and figure out how to talk to people? What the Word of God says is you confront any false teaching in your life. You observe what you might see. Is that right or wrong? You confront all of that with what the Bible has said. The glory of the gospel is not just that God has saved us, but that God will keep us. And he doesn't remain silent when he does that. You and I will go through a lot for the rest of our lives where we need to ask yourself, am I doing the right thing? Am I obeying the right law? Am I surrounding myself with good people? Should I go to that school? Should I go to this school? Should I open up here? Should I close there? All of these things. We should approach through the lens of what God has said. That the normal response, okay, so Sunday school, what's the best response for all Sunday school? Jesus. Uh, maybe, maybe the second best answer is, what has God said? That's what Jesus appealed to. What has my father said? So Christians can flee the danger of demonic and false teaching by basing their ears evaluation on what God says, not what a teacher may claim. And Paul warns that it's possible for us to mess up this good claim. You can pursue marriage sinfully even though it's good to pursue marriage. You could possibly pursue food sinfully like gluttony or uh, intentional starvation, but those pursuits are, are actually seen to be selfish according to the scriptures rather than us responding to them with thankful pursuits. This is what Paul is doing here, helping the church see how they can stave off or avoid the danger of apostasy, and it's by knowing the very word of God. I have never met a person who has aimed to grow in their faith through the word of God and has fallen away from their faith. I've never met anyone who's done that. Statistically and just interpersonally, it's always when someone puts off God's word and starts making up answers for themselves. 
remember having coffee with one of my best friends from college. We hadn't, we'd kind of lost touch with each other. He got married, he had a kid, and, and we wanted to get together and, and have coffee. And so we're, we're kind of catching up, you know, what guys do, OSU football, and where do you live now, and what's, you know, how big's your house, and all this kind of stuff. And just asked him, man, how, how are you doing spiritually? And he just said, I'm, I'm done. And it was just incredibly heartbreaking with the follow-up questions on, man, what, how, how did you get there? What happened there? You know, have you, what, what does the Bible say about this? How, when's the last time you've prayed? All of that. Friends, be encouraged. God promises to keep you if you're his. And God also gives you fuel for your faith. And in this case, you avoid apostasy by knowing and holding fast to the word of God. It is Paul here helping this church by telling them to know the word when faced with trial of demonic teaching and false teaching where they can enjoy and trust the very word of God. And it's what biblical, this is what ultimately biblical preaching is, saying what God's word has said. If you ever need examples of this, of how the word of God can be the fuel for your life, and I encourage you just to meditate on Psalm 19 or Psalm 119. Listen to what these people of the past are being fueled by. Oftentimes we go in very opposite places. Now, a second thing that the text does is it says that we can avoid false teaching and avoid apostasy by actually our church's elders holding fast to their job description. So this is a bold thing. How, do you, how can you avoid apostasy? Know the Bible. How can you avoid apostasy? By your preachers, by your elders, by your pastors actually doing their job. If they're doing your, their job, you can trust in what they're pointing you to. Now, I learned in college that I'm actually afraid of heights. I don't know why it took until college. I guess I never went up that high, but I learned in college. And I learned when I reached the top of the rock climbing wall in my rock climbing class. I reached the top. Took two weeks to do there. Not a lot of upper body strength, but I got there. And then I looked down, and I was afraid of heights. It was a euphoric feeling until it wasn't. But thankfully, I had a buddy. (laughs) Thankfully, I had a buddy. I can't believe I also got a B in that class. I can't. But a buddy below reminded me of two things. The rope blade through a carabiner is strong enough to hold me. And the harness wrapped around me is strong enough to keep me. So I could trust those two things, a rope and a harness, and not be afraid of what appears to be below. The transition of this text from verses 1 through 5 to then 6 through 16 I think 6 through 16, your, your Bible might be like mine where that's two paragraphs. I think it's one section here that Paul is talking about. The transition there may make you feel like you're on the rock's edge, that danger is ahead of you, and it certainly is. But God has given you two things, a rope and a harness, if you will. And, and this is bold for me to say, but here it is in the text, so i got to say it. For your soul's sake, God gives you a pastor, elders, who are tasked with what he'll describe as expositional preaching and exemplary living. He's given the church elders who are tasked with living as an example and by teaching expositionally. Now, one of the costliest things an elder or pastor can do is also one of the more controversial things. One of the most costly things is also one of the most controversial things. It is costly to be a pastor because your life is to be an example of of one who follows Christ where you meet the qualifications of what we heard from last week in chapter 3 of this passage. But you're also to be one who is equally immersed in the Word in such a way that you are to be trusted for their sake of right teaching and right proclamation. 
This text shows how a pastor is to lead and protect his flock from shipwreck. This section of 1 Timothy, it is like a job description for a pastor. And this is where it's controversial, where well-meaning Christians have all kinds of opinions about what a pastor must be, where he's like a combination of a high-powered CEO, a best friend, a Bible study leader, and a creative game show host. But here, the word actually says what these men must be and what they must do. I think this passage is incredibly helpful in outlining what a pastor is because it repeats it three times. I was with a brother this week, and he was talking about this chain, something that was repeated three times in a text elsewhere in the Scriptures. And he rightly said, you know, if it's repeated once or twice, okay, pay attention. But if it's three times, pay attention. And here in our passage, repeated three times, is the call for Timothy to keep this church from apostasy by living as an example and living as an exhorter. Watch the interplay of exemplary living and expositional preaching. Look at verse 7 of the text. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. There's the example. And then in verse 11, command and teach these things. So example and teach. Look at verse 12, the second part of it. Devote, or no, verse 12. But be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. But then look at verse 15. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. This is really where the idea of expositional preaching comes as a command. You've got God's Word to be read, then the command to exhort or teach from that very Word. Now look at verse 15 of the text. You see this a third time. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress, that is, growing in Christ. But then in verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and the church. You you see that interplay. You've got these kind of three categories or these three groupings of be an example and exhort. Be an example and exhort. Be an example and exhort. This is the role of a pastor. We could chat all day about what a pastor is not but it's clear what he must be. We know why his life is called to certain tasks for the sake, not just, not just so that we can operate, but for the sake of Christ's church to actually remain in the gospel. You see that? In the same section of people fleeing the faith, he is saying, Timothy, teach them. Timothy, grow in holiness so that you and they will be saved. So in verses 6 through 16, Paul has Timothy hear these things for the sake of keeping people's hearts attentive to the gospel. And so the structure of Paul's commands comes, I think, by giving three negatives. I mean, don't do this, then two things, and then don't do this, two things, then don't do this. Under these three negative commands, he tells Timothy to be an example and an expositional preacher. And I hope you see the structure of this text. And I want to explain these three categories because I think it helps everything come alive. On your outline, I've got them listed positively. Uh, Timothy is to protect his sheep. How? Helping them avoid apostasy. How is he to live like a, go- like a gospel minister? He's to do all this by first focusing, second progressing, and then third persisting in his life as a minister of the gospel of Christ. Now, this is really the job description of a pastor, one who focuses, one who progresses, and one who persists in life and doctrine. And by doing this, it says he'll save himself and those who hear him. When the leaders of a church give themselves to these two, th- two things, it, pro- it provides a rope and a harness so that the church remains faithful, and, and for us too, and for me too. Now, first thing within the subcategory, first thing Timothy does is he 
or as he, he is called to focus. Look at verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. It's so easy to get caught up in these kinds of things that are out there, things that are out there beyond the scriptures. It's so easy to not be satisfied with what God has made us in Christ or even what God has saved us into the church. And it's easy to look beyond the scriptures and the gospel that Christ upholds. So in chapter 1, verse 6, these are called vain discussions. These irreverent, silly myths, vain discussions. And frankly, it's easy for someone in leadership to see something shiny that's out there and need to convince you that it's super important in here to where the church needs to do this thing. The church needs to know that. And they can get caught up in it. But it's not keeping the focus on the gospel. Some arguments are just frankly fruitless. And some opponents are stubborn. Titus chapter 3 says that he should have nothing to do with divisive people. People who are constantly bringing up stuff and it's like, You just want to shake whoever is doing that and say, hey, heaven and hell hangs in the balance of what we put in front of people. So pastors need to be focused to this end. Paul warns against empty myths and meaningless stories. Another way to put this, Paul commands Timothy to care less about people's cultural preferences, maybe what things used to be or what things could be, and more about the scripture's instruction for the church in the last days. Now, I always thought it'd be fun to go fox hunting on horseback. I mean, they do it in England. Oh, man, it's Independence Day in two days. Shouldn't bring that up. One of the things that England is better than us at is all these fox hunts atop horses. And the dogs who hunt foxes, it's amazing because they really know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. They know what they're going after by a pure sense of one thing, a pure scent of one thing. Everything else is a distraction, but they keep their nose on what they're going after. But those dogs become incredibly worthless if they get all of their sense messed up. Like, is that a rabbit? Is that a squirrel? Is that a cat? Or is that a fox? In the same way, an overseer of a church who's constantly chasing this and that philosophy, discussion, and quick fix, they're worthless. Leaders of a church can't lose the scent of the gospel. They're to be about the scriptures, what God has said, his gospel revealed through his word, his Christ, which the scriptures uphold. An amazing testimony of what it looks like to preach the Bible. It was Jesus who said, all the things here, all the things now, all the things that will come said about me, they're all about me. In the same way for the focus of a pastor or a preacher is to be focused on the gospel. Paul says Timothy should focus by training for godliness or training in godliness. And then in verse 11 is a call to command and teach these things. So he's to be focused by being godly, and to teach these scriptures. This is the structure revealed, again, of the pastoral office, to be focused towards godliness according to the scriptures and to be focused on teaching of the scriptures. That's it. It's narrow. It's focused. And Paul says that people's lives are at stake when other things capture the attention of a pastor. Timothy is called to focus like an athlete who trains. He uses words like toil and strive. You athletes knows what this means. What does it mean to train for something? It means it's going to be really hard work. It's hard work to focus. It takes toughness and grit to focus. And so in response to this, friends, I just ask that you pray for my focus. I pray that you pray, or ask that you pray 
for the other elders' focus. That is, God would continue to bring up people who will shepherd this flock, that we will be men of focus on the gospel. Pray for our elders, that God would give us the desire to focus, the energy to focus, the tenacity to trust in what the focus brings. Look at verse 10. It brings hope set on a living God. Now, the next command that Paul gives is in verse 12. There's a separation of this linguistically. He tells Timothy to rise above the hate the people have on his youth. Regardless of his age, he, he's told to rise above the flesh, again, to be an example. So on your outline, elders should be men of progress in the ministry. I'll read you verses 12 and 13. It says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, until I come Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, there's all sorts of lame and non-biblical reasons that pastors get despised. Often, it has to do with age. They're too young or too old. Maybe they're too inexperienced. Or maybe they're not from here. Ever heard that said? You're just not really from here. Maybe they're not married, or they didn't go to the right school. But here's what Paul is getting at. It will be the temptation of a pastor when he's despised, to feel weighed down or ostracized and discouraged by the people he is called to pastor. They'll slap, and what Paul tells Timothy to do is to rise above. Paul knows it's coming for Timothy, so he tells him to rise above their loathing and revulsion. How? How is he called to rise above the criticism that he'll get? By setting an example in godliness. First, look at verse 12. By being godly in how he speaks, in his conduct, in his love, in his faith, in his purity. He's called to exemplary living. How can he rise above? Secondly, Paul can rise above the social expectations of people in verse 13 by devoting himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhorting from the Scripture, to teaching the Scriptures. Now, this is a synagogue model. They'd gather, and the Word would be opened, It'd be read out loud, and then someone would comment from it and encourage, which means to push people, to encourage people and exhort from that very word. Paul says that if the Ephesian church is going to be tethered to gospel ministry, if this church is going to survive when the demons start talking, if they're going to outlive the falling away of some people's faith, it's going to be by leaders keeping God's word central, not man's opinions. Not a TED Talk on his life's long experiences. Not by topically saying Christianese-type things and then peppering in some supporting verses. No, evil and apostasy will be staved off when a man of God, seen by the people of God as an example, gets up and says, this is the word of the Lord, and it alone will transform your life. Let me bat away the silly myths let me bat away the non-biblical practices. God's revelation will sustain you to the end. But notice that I have a subcategory of progressing. Timothy is not only called to do this, but he's called twice actually to get better at it. Because no man is purely an example of God. He needs to grow in godliness. Only God the Son is perfect and worthy of being an example. But Timothy must grow in this. Every day a better day. No days off in pursuing godliness. He's to be, in verse 13, devoted to this. I love that word devoted, which means to have his regular watchful attention 
on godliness and word work. I have a guy who I really look up to, and he said on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, he's a preacher in Chicago, he says that I tell people when they ask how they can pray for me, I pray that I have brotherly accountability so that I can, my paraphrase, so that I can grow in the faith, brotherly accountability, and long periods of uninterrupted study in the Word. Because I have to come to them as a man of God on that Lord's day and say, this is the Word of the Lord. And I need a lot of time to know what this Word says. His life should be regular evaluation on his growth in godliness, this is Timothy, and evaluation on what does the Word say and how am I doing at reading and preaching it. Devote, this word devote has a connotation of service to it. Like how a valet serves you by parking your car or how a waiter serves you by bringing you food or how a banker serves you by keeping your money safe. They serve you through that. And a pastor is called to serve the church by being devoted to a godly life and biblical doctrine. We can all imagine what's at stake if a man spends his life devoted to the word but neglects his soul. We can all imagine what's at stake if a man spends his life only thinking about his own personal walk but neglects the administration of the word to his church. Timothy is called to both of these two things. They're never separated in this instruction. He's to be devoted to this, to make progress in this. Now, there's a guy named Albert Muller who's the president of a large seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He became very controversially elected to the office of president when he was 33 years old, a young man. Uh, and so they had a Q&A between the students and the faculty and him where he's put up and like stump jump, or he's put on display. And a lot of these are accusational questions and people were fearful of him coming in and taking over. People were angry at him because of what he said and believed. But one guy stood up and basically said, uh, Dr. Muller, you are very young and other faculty are older and wiser than you. What do you plan to do about it? And he very quickly said, I intend to age. I didn't decide when I would be born, but I trust God's providence in deciding when I'd be born and also his calling and bringing me here now. Age is not a factor to me. It may be to others. It's something that's just part of who I am. Without any apologies for my age, as the clock ticks, it changes. The principle here. I just wonder how that went over. Uh, I would imagine his wife just being like, oh my goodness. Uh, the principle of his answer is helpful to see in our text. A pastor is called, as the clock ticks, as the days go on, to make progress in his call to be a holy and good teacher. Every day, a new day. Every Sunday, a new Sunday of how the word prods us towards Zion. Friends, pray that our church would have leaders who are devoted to this that we would be men who desire to make progress, that we would seek to not only know but grow in that knowledge, that we would be devoted. Now, lastly here, elders should hold fast to their job descriptions by persisting. Elders should hold fast to the job descriptions. How can they help the church go away from apostasy? By persisting in their role. Pastors should persist in their job. They should keep pushing. Or put another way, don't quit. Don't neglect what's been laid upon you. Don't give up when trouble comes. Look at verse 14. Do not neglect the gift that you have. What's this gift? It's the gift that was given to him when the elders prophetically, and days earlier, elders prophetically laid their hands on him, ordained Timothy into a life of gospel ministry. So the gift is the calling to be a steward of the gospel, a steward of Christ's church in the official capacity. And it's often tempting 
to those who have been ordained by the local church where hands have been placed on them, it is tempting to just neglect that, to set it on a shelf, or to put, in other words, to quit. But Paul knows it'll be a temptation. And he says, don't neglect it. Remember what happened. People surrounded you and recognized this gift. Now, in our modern evangelical culture, we often oversense, overemphasize the word calling. Anything could be a calling. This is dangerous because we make it out, we make a man's calling out to be some kind of mystical voice from the trees on a backpacking journey. But what this text does is he takes Timothy's call back to what was certain. <clears throat> Timothy, do not grow weary, though the task is rough. Remember that council of elders who laid their hands on you. This is the model for a man being set apart for gospel ministry. The local church identifies someone and is gifting and says, we're prophetically putting our hands on you and commissioning you to this work. When trouble comes, remember the feeling of our hands on your shoulders and keep going forward. But look at verse 15. Paul says that Timothy is going is to want to quit. But how does, Paul, how does Paul challenge Timothy? You know, does he give him a day off? Does he give him a new book on modern ministry and pursuing through all of it? Does he give him a sympathy card? How does Paul help him? He tells Timothy to practice the work of righteous living and expositional preaching. The, the two repeated things again and again, when thrown off a horse, get right back on. Practice these things. He says, immerse yourself in the work. Now, immerse means to become something. Like if you immerse yourself in the study of a particular thing, that person might look like a walking, talking architect. Or that person is a walking, talking basketball player because all they do, they're consumed by it. And he's saying, immerse yourself in these things. A, a total change of identity. Where Paul stresses the high level of pastoral labor is not leisure, activity, or hobby. It's not something you do on the side and apathy and indifference to the task would suck the credibility out of you to such a way that people would look on your lazy life and say, maybe the faith isn't what I once thought it was. But to what aim does Timothy immerse himself? To show he's perfect? No, he aims for regular progress in the task. Let them see that day you're working to be better than yesterday in your holiness and command of the text. Now, no man is God here. This is where it separates us from, from what's achievable, even told what's being told. No man is completely right, but it's about progress in the heart and progress in the pulpit. And again, Paul returns to the two themes. Look at verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Timothy persists in this. Me and my fellow elders, where the three of you are, let us persist in this that we would watch our life, that we would watch our doctrine, and that we would grow in it. Because the church, it says, is at stake. Now, to conclude, there's a, there's a group of people who climb walk, rock walls with no harnesses or any ropes. There's a group of people who climb rock walls without any harnesses or ropes. They're called, they're called free climbers. See this solo climbing. Um, it's just them out there on their own. As high as the rock will go, they'll climb it with no harness or rope. But most of them are dead. <laughs> you and I will watch a documentary about one of them because they're the ones that didn't die. Everyone else dies. 
They make documentaries about those who lived because most of them died. Now, friends, this, this whole text portrays the gravity and tension of local church ministry. Demons influence false teaching. False teachers come in and persuade others to fall from the true faith. And the leaders of our church can decide to go in alone, leading by our own wisdom, leading by our own insight, leaning by our own personality, or we can wisely use what God has given us, like a harness and a rope, exemplary living, and expositional preaching. And by doing so, it says that we save both ourselves and the church. The end of verse 16 is the grounding of what was promoted in verse 1. This is a bookend, and it's clear that there are those who are being led away and are falling away. And the pastoral ministry, in part, and the church's ministry in whole, is the regular attempt to snatch those who are tempted from the fire. The glory of the minister's work, the glory of the church's work, is keeping the sheep on the narrow path toward the celestial city. And the apostle says that this is done, and they're called to persist in keeping the words of righteousness and truth about Christ right before them all. May the same be said of us. Let's pray.